0: Welcome to the Perf Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Boston. Let's go straight to in, uh, introductions, please, of our honored guest, Sharon Kroslowitz, who has been a perfusionist for now 30 years mm-hmm. and has been working with us at HET since 2014, though I knew you sooner than that. Came down and uh, talked with you back when you were the days when you were at. Memorial Herman, if you remember that, those days, you remember that meeting we had, yes. you and Debbie, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, you, your, you received, I'm sorry, your perfusion degree from Albert Einstein College in the Bronx, New York. So you're a Bronx bomber. Um, you immediately after uh, post graduation, you began your perfusion career at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in New York, and you specialized in pediatrics at that time. Uh, over the course of nearly thirty years, Sharon has worked in various institutes in New York, Florida, Texas, including in Columbia Press and uh, Valhalla. Is it Valhalla? Is that how you say it. Valhalla. Valhalla Medical, Medical Center, Center. Uh-huh, and Arnold Palmer Children's Center, Memorial Herman TMC. Uh, you're experienced in adult, pediatric, neonatal uh, transplants, LVADs, ECMO, hyperthermic perfusion. Uh, chemotherapy, auto transfusions. I'm assuming by the hyperthermic, you mean the high pack procedures. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever done systemic hyperthermia? No. Yeah, that's very interesting. People don't like it. Yeah. I can tell you that right now. I've tried that a few times. It's and we tried it back in the '80s, back with AIDS, and then tried it again here, not too fairly recently. Um, and uh, it's really there's a very there's a there's a point where the temperature is it goes up just too high. Mm. And, you know, and if you don't go to that level, uh, I don't know what the right answer is. Whether it's a combination, it's really hard to say. But I do wish those researchers well, it's, uh, it's, uh, but it's tough. It's very, very tough to manage those patients. Uh, but since you've joined HET, you have come here a couple of times and done great on the program. You've bailed us out. Tammy's doing a case and you came in her place. I did have to beg just a little bit, but you did come, which I appreciate so much. And your hobbies include your two laboratory retrievers, spending time with your three children, three sons, who, who are in various stages of college at this point. And uh, you like to cook, cycle, garden, and do stained glass. We're looking for a new set. Maybe you could help us out with some stained glass. Okay, sure. We may like that very much. Okay. So tell us about the app. Before we get started,
1: oh, it's got a lot of great features on it. You know, for looking for calculations, uh, how long it's going to take for an e-cylinder to, to become empty at certain liters. Isn't that um,
2: cool? It, Isn't that yes, a cool I mean there's thing things. Have. You
1: know, I mean it's great just to pull it up because it's you can easily access uh, a lot of different formulas that you go, oh, what what's that formula again? You know, so yeah, it is a great app.
0: It is. Thank you. I appreciate that magic. We need to turn that into an advertisement. The app ad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And it was organic, which is even better. Okay, so the plan today is to, I'm going to give a lecture. And of course, you know, it's a, this is supposed to be a two-hour session. Um, and uh, no one wants to listen to me drone on about slide after slide for two hours. But I do have a lot of slides. Um, what we're planning on doing, or the plan is, to do several slides regarding one section or the other as we progress. And then once we get to a, a, a change from either the who or the how or the how long, we kind of discuss that back and forth. So we'll leave the phone lines open. And as we're doing this, if you want to contribute either, of course, via the telephone, which would be great, or you could do it on the chat or whatever it may be, whether it be the social, the Facebook and the, and the Twitter, or you want to do YouTube. I monitor YouTube. Those guys in the back are looking at Facebook and uh, and Twitter. okay so let's go ahead and get started with our slides and before i get started so um since you're here in a in a word in a word what's your view on who should get ecmo
1: everyone that needs it
0: anyone that needs it yes okay I, i'm
1: sorry but i'm an advocator for if you need it and we have the equipment and the manpower yes we should we should give it to
0: you so i'm going to see if i can change that you opinion you,
1: you, know, to, you know you and i are let me back. try
0: <laughs> let me try give me an opportunity to try okay. okay so you know although everyone listening to this is already going to know what ecmo is um i'm just going to go through this definition and there's you can find a definition for this anywhere you go this happened to come out of the uh, 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 American Thoracic Society extracorporeal membrane oxygenation or ECMO which is the acronym is a life support machine people who need ECMO have a severe and life-threatening illness that stops their heart and or lungs from working properly for example ECMO is used during life-threatening conditions such as severe lung damage from infection. That could be from COVID. That could be from pneumonia, bacterial pneumonia, viral pneumonia. could be from a whole variety of different things, aspiration, um, you name it, or shock after a massive heart attack. So that's basically what is ECMO. So there's our foundation, right? So who gets ECMO? Now in Sharon's thought, anyone that needs it. But trying to be a little more scientific about that, because there's some people who 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 need ECMO um, but uh, they're not gonna get ECMO maybe for a variety old, maybe, of reasons.
1: You know, there's other issues going on
0: that yeah, not... and but you know, I got a telephone call from somebody who I knew who I know and a very nice person and he was telling me about his mom was in uh, the hospital at one of our hospitals, and, you know, they she had uh, she had you know n- uh, pneumonia and she really needed ECMO. And I was like, well, you know, how old is your mom? And when he told me 87, oh, yeah,
2: <laughs> but she
0: was a young to him, she was a young 87. And we're seeing those pressures coming from society. And this is per- somebody who probably really knows very well. that's that's an unrealistic idea for that patient. But again, he was explaining to me how active she was, et cetera, and it is his mother. So it gets very, um, there's a lot of emotion when it comes to making sometimes these very important and difficult and challenging medical decisions, I believe. But who gets ECMO? Well, there are diagnoses, right? There are inclusion criteria. There are exclusion criteria. But we're not going to get too deep in the weeds with this. We're just going to talk about some of the more common diagnoses that you uh, would select or choose or offer ECMO as as an option. So for circulatory collapse, it would be a big MI, big myocardial infarction, big heart attack, could be pulmonary embolus. Could be post-cardiotomy syndrome. You can't get the patient weaned from cardiopulmonary bypass either uh, after coronary bypass surgery or valve replacement or both. Uh, as a bridge to a VAD or to a transplant for a patient, let's say, that has a, you know, a, a viral cardiomyopathy or an idiopathic cardiomyopathy and they uh, just have a failing heart and they're young and they need a transplant but they can't they can't find the right heart for them, then it's a good idea to put that patient on ECMO if you need to bridge them until you can get a more permanent VAT or wait for the heart to be available. And I went ahead and put Takotsubo because I think it's such an interesting phenomenon, and I'm reading more and more about it these days, which is broken heart syndrome. Mm -hmm. And it's very real. In fact, I've seen a patient, if you remember, at North Cyprus, I don't know if you, if you ever helped us with I did, that particular I did. case. I'm
1: trying to remember which patient, but I vaguely remember.
0: Yeah, so I is. can tell you the story about her, but may, let's first describe Takatsubo. So taketsu, so a taco, it's T-A-K-O, so I guess it's taco uh, and subo. Um, so a taco is the octopus, and a subo is a trap. So a taketsubo is an octopus trap and if you look up at the top uh left picture which is on the top right of the screen that is a ventricular gram Mm -hmm. of a left ventricle that is experiencing takotsubo Mm -hmm. and you can see the apex of the heart of course down by the right it's point the little arrows pointing to it at the line and then the base of the heart where you have your aortic valve. You can actually see the aortic valve. So that's more or less the LV outflow tract Mm -hmm. is really kind of what you're looking at there. And to the right is an actual takatsubo, which is the octopus trap. And you can see the similarity in it. It's so amazing. And in the bottom picture, what you see is a a fishing boat with these traps tied to them, these takatsubos tied to them going to the bottom. An octopus or octopi like small, dark places. So they will go in there as a hiding place. And, of course, they have them marked with the flag and the buoy. And they come pick up all of their traps. And inside, they find their octopus. And there's their crop or their meal or whatever the, it may be. So... That's how Takatsubo got its name is actually from this. I thought that was just somewhat interesting. But the lady that I was talking about, um, the the sister worked at the hospital at North Cyprus as a uh, case manager. And her sister's husband ended up in the emergency department. And uh, he had had a massive MI, all resuscitative efforts failed and they went out and told the wife that he had died. Mm-hmm. And she clenched her chest, she started breathing rapidly, she looked at the intensivist, who she, her sister knew, but she, she kind of knew him from various different uh, social functions, and said, please don't let my children lose both parents on the same day, and she went out yeah. down on the yeah. floor. She was arrested, mm-hmm. They did CPR, took her to the cath lab and found this very phenomenon. Mm-hmm. The ventricular, got a, a, a pulse, a heartbeat back and her left ventricle was just ballooning out paradoxically to contraction. And she had what was then referred to as classic Takotsubo. And we put her on ECMO and she was on ECMO for about 48 to 55, 56 hours. Was weaned off and went on to do just fine and live, and still is alive, living a perfectly normal life. Awesome. So it was just a temporary stunning mm-hmm. with no permanent uh, uh, effect uh, later on. So I thought that was very interesting. That is interesting. But I mean, we've experienced it. I've been heartbroken before. And you can have, I'm. I'm. I, I. Have you ever experienced that where you can actually feel like your heart hurts?
1: I can't say hurts, but. Just maybe a heaviness.
0: or Heaviness yeah. to it, yeah. yeah. I do. I think hormonal effect is, mm. is really, really huge. Sure. Um, so anyway, can you also use ECMO for pulmonary failure? Of course, ARDS. We've seen a tremendous amount of ARDS with COVID, mm. but it's also you have influenza-related ARDS. There's, ARDS is just acute respiratory distress syndrome. So it can be from a lot of different causes, but there are certain things we look for. Consolidations, of course, you lose your PF ratio. Your lungs aren't working in a very global way as opposed to just regional. It's ARDS is all both lungs, all of the lung that's going to be affected. Of course, you could just have hypercapnic respiratory failure. Uh, not uncommon to see that. You could have aspiration. We talked about aspiration pneumonia. And of course, bridge to transplant. You could have idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Uh, although we are seeing a lot of pulmonary fibrosis post-COVID, it's not idiopathic, mm-hmm. it is COVID-related. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, you can, you know, that mm-hmm. disease does also exist, and it's a purpose for ECMO or a good diagnosis for ECMO as you're waiting for transplant. Pulmonary hypertension, you could have obliterative. Uh, bronchiolitis. There's a lot of or, or bronch bronchiolitis, subliterans, whatever. However, you want choose to say it. Um, same thing. Um, and uh, I think we're also seeing a lot of that, which is resulting in pulmonary hypertension from the COVID destroying the airways. It's really a f- interesting phenomenon what we've been seeing, and how it's played out. So ECMO. I think we have now seen in just a few slides is a bridge. It is a bridge to something. It is like the Golden Gate Bridge, which goes from San Francisco, which is on the far side of this picture, over to uh, Sausalito, which is on the foreground side of this picture. So you're looking towards uh, the bridge crossing the the, the bay, the San Francisco Bay, going from Sausalito over to uh, San Francisco. Or you can be like this bridge uh, from Glasgow, Scotland, which is the classic bridge to nowhere. And that is the part about ECMO that can be very difficult, is evaluating and assessing which patient is going to be the uh, you know, a good candidate for recovery, and if not recovery, before we get this started, what is essentially, what is our exit strategy? Should you have an exit strategy before you get started? And these are some very important questions. Let's go and just open it up for Sharon and I to discuss this, because I want to get her thoughts, and then we'll come back to the how do we do this. So there's sort of my, my, my tossing the ball over to your court, is you have patient X, Patient X needs ECMO. We're just gonna say for the sake of this discussion, it's purely pure pulmonary failure. It's gonna be VV ECMO. Mm-hmm. You have to ask yourself a whole lot of questions about this patient. And one of those questions has to be, I believe, what is the exit strategy for this patient? What say you?
1: I mean, I am a strong believer in everyone needs a chance. and especially right now in this time when we're still learning from COVID, you know, you, you don't know. We're so uncertain still of what our outcomes are going to be. Mm-hmm. And we've had some great successes, right? And that makes it all worth it. I don't think you can come into this and say, you know, okay, we're going to put you on ECMO for two weeks or three weeks. And then if you're not improving, we're turning you off. Because you and I both know it's taken a lot longer than that for a lot of our patients. And everyone deserves that chance.
0: hmm everyone deserves that chance well, if you I agree with you that everyone long as deserves you don't that have chance
1: contraindications say like advanced age or well yeah
0: you're yes. right yeah but I'm still I'm, I'm setting this up like'm I'm, I'm like a I'm like an attorney right now at trial and I'm just trying to I'm trying to get your get you to go what I know the path you're going to go. <laughs> So I'm trying to get you to go down there and commit. Mm. I need you to commit. Everyone deserves a chance.
2: They do.
0: Notwithstanding these exclusion criteria, like the patient ha- is decapitated. Well, we're not doing ECMO oh, on a
2: decapitated yeah, patient. No.
0: Okay. <laughs> Patient's 93 years old. We're not doing ECMO on a 93-year-old. I understand mm-hmm. that. Patient, even though, uh, let's say the patient has a BMI of 79, there are people that have put okay. patients with a BMI of seventy nine on, yeah, and they I think survive. We've had a few close so to that maybe that isn't one hundred percent either, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. they have a terminal illness. Mm-hmm. They have cancer that's untreatable. It's terminal. They're let's say they're in hospice. We're not going to put that patient on uh, ECMO, um, or shouldn't. I don't believe.
1: That's true.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I know we've gotten to the point on many of our ECMO runs where it's what 70 days and you're like oh my god we're, we're going nowhere mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden things turn around mm-hmm. doesn't that make it all worth it all mm-hmm. the effort mm-hmm. is worth
2: it
0: then it do, it is
1: because if and it were I see me that
0: i see that passion in you i do <laughs> and i appreciate it and respect it tremendously yeah, i mean
1: i, I want to fight for these people and especially because now it's so different with the covid patients because they're awake they're talking to us we're getting to know them, what, what they did before they came into the hospital, what their hobbies are, their families, their, who their kids are, how many kids, their ages. And you become attached to these people. Mm-hmm. And that makes me want to fight for them even more.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, we've lost a lot of people in this last couple of years. We COVID. have.
0: We have. And it sucks. And we've saved some that I never thought were salvageable. Exactly. And we've lost the ones that I absolutely thought were salvageable. Yeah. And none of it makes any yeah. sense to me. I can't quite figure But isn't it, out. it
1: worth giving them every shot you can so that maybe they can have another, who knows, six months with their family, you know, a year. Mm-hmm. Heck, even if it's a, a week. Mm-hmm. I'd want another week with my family.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Right? Wouldn't you? Y-
0: yes. I mean, I view it a little differently. I mean, if we're going to get into a philosophical <laughs> conversation about this, if I know that that is the end... Um, then I, 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 although I would want the time with them and they probably would want the time with me, it just, from my perspective, delays the pain that they're going to have to go through the loss or whatever. Hopefully, I I, I I hope. No, I think that I disagree. um,
1: Because if you're mm -hmm. taking, taken from them abruptly or before they're ready, and they feel they didn't get a chance to say goodbye to you. Say you're on ECMO and you don't wake up. We don't wake you up. You're not mm-hmm. one of the awake patients.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm not going on ECMO, okay? <laughs> Let's just make sure. That's what we, you think. I'm not going on ECMO. <laughs> but go ahead. We're
1: going to put you on an experiment on
0: mm-hmm. One of my sayings, yeah, no doubt. One of my sayings, of course, which, uh, which I've said to several people in my life, there are fates far worse than death. Mm-hmm. Yes. But go ahead. You, 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 oh, you I were saying.
1: I've lost my track now. But.
0: You lost your track. Oh, well, you were talking about <laughs> the time with your family and they're not yeah. ready to say goodbye and et cetera. And, and, and I think
1: that's important. I mean, I think if you give, you know, if you can give somebody, you know, however much more time with their family, they have a chance to come to closure with, with you know, the family member, the patient. And I think that's better than saying, we put you on ECMO and... You didn't wake up and they never got a chance to say goodbye or say I love you or whatever. Mm. I mean I think yeah. COVID has made us see these things. You know, you're mm-hmm. you we've gotten more involved with the families, more involved with the patients. I mean, I, I get very close to my patients mm-hmm. and their families. And a
0: lot of that is is just simply because of the length the of time. Duration. Yes, exactly. Right. Yes. The duration of time that we're managing these patients. Yes. That we see them every day for every day. weeks and, and months.
1: It's so cool because they're awake and they're talking and they're eating and some of them are walking down the hallway and exercising. Mm-hmm. It's a whole new ball game, but mm-hmm. it's really been an eye-opener.
0: It has been, absolutely. It's really what I think it's taught me is how durable the human body actually is. Mm how much insult the human body can oh, yeah. actually take oh, yes. and still and it's so it, it's it it's that fine line it can tolerate so much but if you give it one more straw <laughs> it just drops right off the cliff it's mm-hmm. very yeah. amazing the way that happens okay so let's go back to those slides so how do we do ECMO what do we do well, this is something that uh, uh, John Ingram had discussed once before, but I want to go over it again. So, predom- basically, there are two types of ECMO. You have veno arterial, used to treat circulatory collapse, and you have veno venous, which is used to treat isolated pulmonary failure. So, where you see the dash, so when you look at V-A, or you look at V-V, where that dash is located is where the oxygenator is. So, in V-A, it's the venous access into the oxygenator, returning to the arterial circulation. In venovenous, it's venous access, going through an oxygenator, going into, back into the venous circulation someplace else to achieve what you're trying to achieve. So it's very important when you are describing your ECMO cannulation strategy and when you're writing it down, that you not just simply put, especially if it's a hybrid, which I'll show you some examples of, VVA. Mm -hmm. If you put VVA or you put VVV, no one knows if you have one access and two returns. No one knows if you have two accesses and one return. There's, you don't know if it's VAV, if your veno arterial venous Mm -hmm or if there's some other configuration that you're doing. So it's very important that we use. Now, I was gonna use a different picture to describe or to to show uh, exotic, but uh, I thought better of it since this is a family show on YouTube. But there were some (laughs) other options that I had. I considered it, okay? Um, and you can talk to Tammy about that. She oh. will tell you. In fact, she's the one who said, I, I, I don't think I would do that if I were you. I think you better, 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 better go with the later. car. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'll show you. Yes, I'll show you. So it's really not that bad. It was a New Orleans picture. Oh, boy. Okay, so it's not that bad, okay? <laughs> it's still New Orleans. It was on the, it was on the webs, the, okay. inter, the interwebs. Okay. So in this situation, here are some complex and exotic ECMO cannulations for VA and VV ECMO again depending on what you're trying to accomplish so in this configuration you have venous access oxygenator venous return and arterial return mm-hmm. so what i would suspect here is that really you're trying to support the circulation with the VA or at, you know or you're trying to support the right heart mm-hmm and you need the pulmonary support because your lungs are not providing gas exchange. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would assume just from this. Probably more a a pulmonary problem because they put the V first, and then the arterial circulation is more for, let's say, right heart support. So this is going to be most of your flow. This is gonna be a reduced flow just to give you some RV unloading. That's what I would expect here. With VAV, I would say you have complete heart failure. You have venous access, oxygenator, going into the arterial circulation, femoral cannulation, in which case you need to have the venous to avoid Harlequin or North-South syndrome or or differential hypoxemia or whatever you want to call it. Right. Then you can have VV, two venous accesses, into an oxygenator, back to venous. Or you can have one venous access going to two venous returns. You can have two venous accesses going to two venous returns. You can have three venous access going to one arterial return. These are some examples of real, these are cases that actually were done. These cannulations actually do exist and have been done. Um, Then you can have parallel circuits. You can have... The butterfly, which uh, Matt at, uh, and, and uh, Vanderbilt, uh, from Vanderbilt during the faculty forum last, uh, I think two weeks ago, discussed, which is Venus-Venus and a second circuit Venus-to-Venus Venus with the o- two oxygenators.
1: What was the reason for that?
0: They needed that much flow. Big Because patient? the patient, not necessarily, super hyperdynamic. Oh, okay. When your cardiac output, and we've discussed this in previous programs, when your cardiac output's 14 liters
2: mm.
0: and you can only flow five, exactly. you cannot oxygenate. You have too much blow-by. Okay. And so especially if your lungs are just not working at all. So it could be a younger patient, super hyperdynamic. So if you can increase that that treatment to 10 liters or 12 liters, mm. you're going to have a much better... PO2 arterially, and so you would use these parallel circuits. And I have pictures of these, so at least you can see that. Then you can have veno-arterial plus veno-arterial parallel circuits. You can have venous to venous plus venous to arterial as well. So you can have complex uh, 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 cannulation as a single circuit, and you can have complex and exotic cannulation Or systems with a parallel circuit now this is not a tandem circuit when I say parallel totally different than having oxygenators in series Mm -hmm. for better gas exchange that does not improve flow whatsoever Mm -hmm. so here are some images of it and if you look here to the uh, top right you can see the butterfly technique so you're draining from the uh, bilaterally on the venous uh, femoral uh, veins going into the IBC, probably a different length, different heights or depths, uh, as you wish to call it, going through the oxygenator, going back up into... No. Yes? We lost
2: your, uh, your
0: screen mirroring. Oh, you lost screen mirroring? Okay, yeah. sorry. Mm. Mm. One second, guys. Sorry about that. Mm. Would that... would. Would what the quality of that bonus week, many cultures that bonus week burdens the healthcare care system? I'm not sure I understand that. What would the quality of that bonus, oh, the week, the quality of the bonus week? Many cultures that bonus week burdens the healthcare care team. Um, so we'll come back to that. I, did you understand what there's the uh-huh. remember you said about uh-huh. the, your patient, get, you get an extra week with your family. They're asking, what would the quality of that be? Uh, uh, Scrappy, let us know who you are uh, versus just your screen name. Um, and uh, we will address that in the next segment where we, where we do some talking uh, about these different topics and different questions that we have. So basically, you're uh, bringing it back to the right IJ here and to probably the uh, left subclavian here. So, you have two parallel circuits um, to give you really high, car, uh, high treated ECMO, effective ECMO flow. We'll call okay. it that, because okay. you have ECMO flow, but you have effective ECMO flow. And I think that really improves that tremendously. Here you see another parallel circuit. And in this particular case, it's veno to arterial. You see it there. And this one here is another. Veno to arterial. So mm-hmm. this is VA, parallel VA ECMO uh, 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 support. The femoral venous is your access for one circuit, and your right IJ is access for your second circuit, mm-hmm. going to give you very high flow. You look over here, and you have a little different configuration. This circuit here is basically veno venous through an Avalon. And then this circuit here is actually central cannulation going into the aorta. But again, they're parallel, parallel circuits. Here you have venous access going to right IJ. So it's a parallel, it's a circuit, a VV circuit with dual cannulation, the old style from the uh, femoral, you know, from the low IVC into the right IJ, and central cannulation VA ECMO. And then, of course, here you can see the various different configurations that you would have for your, what we described earlier, VVA, VAV, VVA, all of this stuff. And just remember the dash is where the oxygenator goes, makes it very easy to understand what they're trying to do for that particular circumstance. So choosing the appropriate configuration and cannulation strategy for your ECMO um, is a process, and it's a dynamic process, and you have to understand what you are trying to accomplish in order to know which one of these circuits you need to use. And it's fluid, which I'll sort of discuss as we move forward. But when you go back and look at ELSO in the... For the uh, purely respiratory, which is the pie uh, uh, chart on the left, you can see that the overwhelming majority are pretty straightforward VV. There are some people that will do VA ECMO for respiratory failure, as is illustrated there, and it's a it's a pretty good sized chunk, but it's it's certainly pretty small, but. Comparatively, it's it's small, but it's still a pretty good-sized chunk. I have never been an advocate, and I strongly advocate against using VA ECMO for pure pulmonary failure. Um, you can get yourself to an awful lot of trouble doing that, and, and I don't like it. You can see that in the uh, green slice, it's unknown. I don't know how you could possibly not know what your cannulation is. I guess they just didn't report it. Um, and a very thin slice of VVA. Now, again, they describe it as VVA. That doesn't tell me a lot. Remember, we discussed this. Is that VV-A or is that V-VA? Totally different therapies. And without having that dash makes this chart mm, not tell me a lot. But I can tell that something other than VV or VA is a very, very thin slice. In the arterial for cardiac failure, you can see straightforward VA is very dominant. Um, You can have VV for cardiac failure if and only if, and we've discussed this many times, if and only if your cardiac dysfunction is secondary to hypoxemia. So if that is the case, you can put them on VV and their cardiac function will very frequently recover very quickly. And that helps you to avoid the uh, going into the arterial circulation. The problem with that is, is that that shouldn't really be on that side. It shouldn't be in that data. It should be in the other data because if it's if it's heart failure secondary to hypoxemia treated with vv ecmo really it's a respiratory problem so it probably shouldn't be there i think it's misleading in the sense that when would anyone put a patient with circulatory collapse on vv ecmo if the circulatory collapse was like for some other reason like an mi or whatever the case may be so i think that's odd you get into the (laughs) <laughs> Again, you have another very small slice that goes to VVA is that VVA right. or is that VVA right. which is it? Again, you know I think that's something that is a limitation, but my point which I got off sidetracked is that the blue and the red on the left and the right are the overwhelming dominant portions of how people do ECMO on a worldwide basis. This mm-hmm. came from Elso. Mm-hmm. If you look at, on the left is respiratory, on the right is uh, cardiac, and you see since 1986, and really let's just focus on the past few years, 2014, 15, 16, you see that the number that survived in respiratory versus the number that died, blue on the bar is survived, yellow is uh, died, you can see where we get the 60% survival or 40% mortality with VV ECMO for respiratory failure. And that's where this came from. This is all pre-COVID. COVID has very much changed this, which we will kind of get into. You look on the other side, and basically it's the inverse. It's reverse of what you just got through looking at on the respiratory. In the cardiac world, your chances of survival are about 40%. Some, and your chances of dying or your mortality rate's about 60. Maybe it's a little higher, 35, 65, but it's right about that range if you look at those graphs and you go back and you look through all of that data. There are some advantages and potential pitfalls associated with different ECMO models when you're using arterial cannulation techniques. If you're doing it percutaneous, you can do femoral, but you can't do subclavian or carotid. Uh, carotid, really, we're not even gonna look at that because that's gonna be more of a pediatric thing. No adult is going to get an, a, 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 a carotid cannulation. Uh, central cannulation, aortic certainly would make sense if you're already in the operating room. Uh, distal perfusion complications requiring fasciotomy Obviously, going to be a lot more common in the femoral route, as you can see. You look through that. Um, if you need amputation, again, you'd find the same uh, same phenomenon. Implantation requiring usage of a graft in the femoral is less than ten percent, and in the subclavian, it's seventy nine percent. And I would argue, I would never do uh, 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 put a put femoral or do subclavian a, a return. Without a graft, I don't think it makes any sense to put a cannula in the subclavian. I think everyone should get a graft. In fact, the last one that we did just recently that I transferred to the other hospital, we did it on the left subclavian, and it was very nice, very elegant, very easy to do, and you really help to protect the limb when you do that that way. But it says 79% on a worldwide basis. Um, do you need a sternotomy? Well, you only do if you're going to cannulate aortically, but no one's going to just do a sternotomy unless you're already done a sternotomy for some other reason. You can see that the stroke rate varies tremendously, femoral 6% to 23%. Uh, In the aortic, it's about 21%. Again, we're not going to mention the carotid, but you can obviously see it's higher and one would suspect something like that. Bleeding, of course, you're going to have a a little, well, interestingly enough, it actually shows more in the femoral, and I'm assuming that's from cannulation site. You're also going to have a higher infection rate in the femoral for obvious reasons. Um, And then explantation requiring vessel reconstruction, much more common in the femoral, which also makes sense because in the subclavian, if you're using a graft, you're really not going to have that problem. You tie it off and you tuck it in there and you're done. But these are some of the things. And, of course, you have to talk about ambulation. Very difficult to ambulate somebody with a line coming out of their groin or two lines coming out of their groin. Uh, Complications arising during ECMO support, uh, and this is, of course, from ELSO. Respiratory is on the left. Cardiac is on the right. Um, Hemorrhagic complications, about 12.5%. Surgical site uh, for the uh, for the cardiac, uh, 17.5, and that's probably going to be because you're in the femoral artery that's just under higher pressure and they bleed more. You've got hemorrhagic surgical site bleeding, as you can see the difference there, higher in the cardiac. Neurologic brain death is going to be higher in the cardiac. Renal dialysis, requiring dialysis, fairly equal requiring hemofiltration, a little higher on the veno-venous, but I suspect that's because they last longer. Veno-arterial, you're usually getting done a lot sooner with those. Um, They don't last quite as long. Uh, Cardiovascular use of inotropes, uh, you see it higher on the cardiac, but it's actually quite high when you look at the respiratory, veno-venous ECMO, because you do have that issue of the right heart starting to fail when the, when the uh, pulmonary, when you start developing pulmonary hypertension, it's really coming from that, I believe. Uh, infections are going to be a little bit higher on the venous side as well. Uh, Limous ischemia, obviously higher going to be in the cardiac side because you're in the arterial mm-hmm. circulation. Mm-hmm. All of these things, I think, make a lot of sense. But here's the thing. Choices have consequences. That's what the slide says in the background. And these are the things that I want to kind of discuss. Who, and equally important when, do we decide ECMO is appropriate? ECMO is not without its own consequences. Inadequate oxygen delivery, hypoxia, mechanical ventilation, high dose and multiple pressors, are prognosticators of bad outcomes. ECMO itself stimulates several negative reactions, which I'm going to get a little more into. Choosing to initiate ECMO is therefore not without significant risk of doing harm. So when we talk about early, let me get through the list and then we'll discuss it. Waiting to initiate ECMO, however, itself can do harm. Choosing the right cannulation strategy is not always as straightforward as it seems. Changing patient status must be recognized, and preferably early, and addressed early, which means if you need to add a cannula, you need to add a cannula. Setting goals should be discussed from the very beginning in a multidisciplinary approach before initiation and when to or not to continue uh, the the support of any one particular patient. Um, And that itself is not without its consequences, and we're going to really get into that uh, in a deep way. So choosing to initiate ECMO is not without significant risk of doing harm. But waiting too long to initiate ECMO can make, the disease process irreversible.
1: And we've seen that firsthand.
0: <laughs> Where is the line? What's too early? What's too late? How do we know? There's a paucity of data on this. It's it's it's, it's it it is probably the most that uh, is it is the, the the most difficult conundrum to uh, to uh, to navigate. Uh, uh, for these patients, for us taking care of these patients and the medical teams that are making the decisions too or not to do what we're going to do. I agree. Your thoughts on that? I
1: agree. No, I mean, it's 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 a hard decision to make. And, and I, as I say, with COVID, we're still learning, right? Um, but there are many times when you want to initiate ECMO, and ECMO has its own disadvantages, like SERS reactions and, mm-hmm. you know, of course, you know, coagulation issues and bleeding and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it is a fine line, and every patient is different, you know.
0: Yes, agreed.
1: And I think, you know, we do our best, right? We do our best to try and find the sweet spot of, okay, that's it, it's time to put them on. You yes. know, you don't want to jump into it right away because maybe they have a chance of pulling themselves through.
0: Mm-hmm. 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 But know. you also don't necessarily want to be um, like we did many times uh, during the height of the pandemic, where they are actively resuscitating the patient mm. because they were upstairs, um, unable to breathe, hypoxic for days and days and days, um, and finally just gave out. Yeah. And now they're in a full blown code, and they're trying to, you know, they're rushing the patient down for the, well, actually taking somebody out of the unit. That may not really need to be out of the unit quite yet to get that patient in to put that patient on ECMO. Mm -hmm. And that happened several times.
1: Oh, I know. Yes, Mm -hmm. But waiting too long, you know, by then the patient is completely wiped out, you know, stressed out. Mm -hmm. And maybe there is no coming back from that brink of destruction that we've allowed Mm -hmm. to happen because we've been just sitting on this patient. Mm
0: -hmm. But remember what I said to you earlier, I was weaving you down, I was taking you down a path, <laughs> and I was taking you there for a reason, because we're going to get back to it, okay, <laughs> okay, during my closing arguments. I I've mean, watching... early
1: on in the, in the whole COVID thing that we've had going on here, we had to wait sometimes because there was a lack of equipment, mm-hmm. right? Lack of equipment, lack of staff, lack of beds. We didn't have a choice back then.
0: hmm Mhm. Agreed. Agreed. Um and Vincent uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon Vincent. If you're watching Vincent Fan and then scrappy scrappy who had uh, put, asked actually I mean it was a reasonably good decent question actually cuz quality had? of life the one that they redacted it but it had to do with the quality of the extra week so that if you we give a patient an about. extra
1: week what is his quality of life? Well, what's
0: the right what's the quality of that week? Right, it was the, I, it I was mean, the question. I don't. But it's a, it's a but they redacted it. They or they retracted it rather. It says message retracted. They took it back. Okay. I had asked who they were but I guess they didn't want to tell us. But it's scrappy <laughs> scrappy. If you're scrappy you want to re-ask the question, we're happy yeah, I, we're, I think to discuss it. But Vincent uh, also says good afternoon, so we're saying good afternoon back to Vincent. Okay. So let's go back to the slides, but we'll, we'll, we'll circle back to that. Um, looking at extracorporeal life support and inflammation, something that you just brought up. Well, ECLS, which is extracorporeal life support, facilitate lung protective ventilation, which causes or results in a reduction in pro-inflammatory cytokines, decreased ventilatory-induced uh, lung injury, which we see very commonly, uh, gives you myocardial rest if it's VA and hemodynamic improvement. So you get all of those pressors and drips down and improvements in organ perfusion, Mm -hmm. which of course all lead to decreased systemic inflammation. On the other hand, when you put people on ECMO, you have visceral ischemia and reperfusion injury, which results in the reactive oxygen species we're all very familiar with, uh, which results in end-organ dysfunction. You have bacterial component uh, translocation. You get endotoxemia, which leads to a dysregulation of the inflammatory mediators, cellular dysfunction, activation of complement coagulation, leukocytes, and platelets, which increases the systemic inflammatory process. Mm-hmm. So you are fighting a never-ending battle, much like we do every day. Every day that we are alive, that an organism lives. It lives in a state of homeostasis, but you have infl- pro-inflammatory uh, mediators, and you have anti-inflammatory mediators, And as these are produced under various different circumstances, these are produced to counter it and keep us in homeostatic neutrality. Mm -hmm. When you become dysregulated, it becomes very difficult. You have surges of inflammatory mediators. You can have surges of anti-inflammatory mediators. You can then, then you be, of course you be, you start developing autoimmune problems. So you, it's a very com, it's a such a simple, elegant physiology that either hypoxia or hypoperfusion can result in its stimulation, which by fixing that attenuates it. But the very thing you're going to use to attenuate this physiologic derangement is itself so Mm a-physiologic that it itself can create all of these problems. So it is a very complex uh, issue to deal with. Um, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on these slides, but basically just talks about various different modalities, whether it be cardiopulmonary bypass, VA, ECMO, VV, ECMO, or uh, the uh, extracorporeal CO2 removal system, ECCO2R. Um, But uh, obviously, you see organ support is going to be cardiac and pulmonary. Again, VA, cardiac and pulmonary, VV, pulmonary, just oxygenation and ventilation. Duration, minutes to hours for bypass, days to weeks for VA, days to weeks. I contend months on the VV. Anticoagulation for CPB, standard cardiopulmonary bypass, for coronary bypass surgery or for valve replacement, stuff in the operating room we're talking about here, very high-dose heparin is required for VA, low-dose heparin, for VV, low-dose or no heparin. We've done a whole lot of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's reversal for protamine for the cardiopulmonary bypass patients, but we do not use protamine in VA or VV. Um, Air-blood interface does exist in the CPB circuit, which creates its own set of problems, and that is absent in VA and VV, and also in the EC, uh, CO2. Uh, ECLS as a cause of systemic inflammation, and this is a very important concept, exposure of blood to the circuit itself. Inflammatory response mimics that of SIRS, which is Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome. A lot of this has to do with the interaction uh, that the patient has with the circuit. And we talk about that a lot of times. When we initially put an ECMO on or when we're changing a circuit out, there is, generally speaking, a honeymoon phase in the very, very beginning. But then you start having these various things happen and you see this interaction take place. And so they have this very brief honeymoon phase. And then you'll see them start to dip quite a bit become a little more hemodynamically weak, becoming a little more hypoxic. You'll see the inflammatory process. Their lung pressures go up. You start noticing they're holding more fluid. Urine output sometimes decreases. All of the things that we're looking at Mm -hmm. um, that tell us this patient is having an interaction with something, and then eventually that disappears. And that usually takes a couple of days. Um, These reactions are humoral and cellular in nature. They are independent circuit biocompatibility may help to attenuate to some degree, but I think that though I am a very strong believer in that, I think that it is somewhat oversold as, uh, as being truly biocompatible. I think the only way you're going to accomplish that is with complete uh, pseudo endothelialization of the entire circuit, and I don't think that's something that can be done uh, too easily research uh, on this is limited at this time, but there is a lot of research going on uh, with this. You know that's one of the benefits uh, that one of the benefits that existed when we used Trasolol, a protein right. with its calocrine right. inhibiting units, uh, we saw tremendous decrease in generation, tremendous decrease in inflammatory uh, reactions. So it was an excellent drug, I think, mm. for those purposes. Contact system, coagulation cascade, and of course the complement system. Following initiation, the contact system becomes activated, promotes coagulation, and drives inflammation. <clears throat> Onset is rapid and results in neutrophil activation, release of nitric oxide and other pro-inflammatory cytokines, which, of course, CRRT is very beneficial. We're not talking about CRRT today, but that is a topic that I think is important that you need to understand as well when you do ECMO because I think ECMO and CRRT are really something that I don't think you should do ECMO if you don't have CRRT, and I don't think you should do ECMO if you can't incorporate the CRRT into your ECMO machine. Different topic for a different day, but I thought I'd throw it out there. Um, and this is well understood through a lot of work that's been done on cardiopulmonary bypass. Everything we know about ECMO really comes from the cardiopulmonary bypass arena because we had done that for so long. Really ECMO was LVADs. It wasn't truly ECMO. We didn't start doing ECMO until you know, really routinely pretty recently compared to how long we've been doing cardiopulmonary bypass. The contact system, however, triggers both the intrinsic and extra- extrinsic coagulation pathways leading to clot formation, which results in further inflammation. Even with anticoagulation, you have subclinical coagulation that does occur, especially in these ECMO patients who may be already hypercoagulable or you're just using inadequate anticoagulation and depending strictly on flow. The problem with that is is that you are always going to have areas of stasis Mm -hmm. somewhere, Mm -hmm. whether it be in the circuit itself, the oxygenator, or in the patient. Mm -hmm and something that you need to be in, uh, take into consideration. Um, there is an expression of tissue factor from activated monocytes, or the TNF-alpha uh, and IL-6. Remember you talked about IL-6, IL-6 just a minute mm-hmm. ago? Mm-hmm. Induced release of soluble tissue factor without the need for tissue injury triggered. That's very important. So you are releasing soluble tissue factor even without a tissue injury. That's coming from an intrinsic pathway. These resulted in a 30-fold increase in thrombin formation, IL-6, of course, being a a bad IL uh, because there are good ILs, Mm -hmm. interleukins. The complement system is also triggered with a rapid onset once you have established ECMO or ECLS and usually lasts one to two days. This complement system activation is mediated by C5, C3, C3B, and terminal complement complex resulting in leukocyte recruitment vascular permeability, which is why we see our patients swelling up, and endothelial dysfunction, which, of course, the endothelium is so critically important to managing coagulation, right? Negative effects of ECLS also include platelet mediation of inflammation, endothelial dysfunction, Neutrophil infiltration, which is very common when you see a a, a lung injury, but ECLS-associated lung injury is from this neutrophil infiltration. And I don't know, do you remember the drug Zygris? Mm. So ARDS was sort of coming on the scene. People were recognizing it, talking about ECMO as an alternative. And Zygris, I don't remember exactly the mechanism of action for that drug. It's off the market. It was pulled off the market. But the theory or the, the reason you gave that drug was to stop the infiltration of white cells into the alveolar capillary wall, which was what was thickening it in the ARDS, causing your gas exchange or oxygenation and CO2 removal to be compromised. Mm-hmm. And so anytime you have neutrophil infiltration into these membranes, which are very, very, very thin, You cause them to have an inflammatory reaction, which, of course, swells them. And when you are depending on diffusion, that's not a good thing to have happen. You don't want the distance between point A and point B to be very much because it's not. And then, of course, you have to be concerned about bacterial translocation. And that that is basic. we'll talk a little bit more about that, but that has a lot to do with gut ischemia, which is not very uncommon in ECMO patients. And we'll talk a little bit more about that because it's really an important concept that i think a lot of people miss and why i'm so insistent about always wanting to check lactates when something isn't looking right because that's the first thing i start to think about really and it's it's because it's the biggest problem if it's not there great the lactate comes back normal but when it starts bumping you got to get real aggressive and if you wait too long until it's too high i think you reach a point that you can't correct the situation Um, ECLS, uh, however, can be a therapy for systemic inflammation. I just got through talking about all the bad things that ECLS does. But if you are in cardiogenic shock, you're hypoxic, you're hypercapnic, it is a stress-induced inflammation. You will have a big-time inflammatory process. Ventilatory-induced lung injury. If you have a patient on mechanical ventilation with high pressures, you are going to cause... A reduction in circulating cytokine levels when switched, or sorry, an increase in circulating cytokine levels, which won't be uh, reduced until you can switch the patient to a lung protection <clears throat> ventilatory setting. These very high uh, pressures in the lungs are very pro-inflammatory to the lungs. And, uh, of course, the reason for the uh, reduction in cytokines when you go to lung protection ventilation is thought to be associated with reduction in the alveolar stress and strain associated with high pressures in your your respiratory system. Ongoing research on ultra-protective mechanical ventilation is now also being explored. So we have our normal, you know, we're looking to have the PEEP at 10, you want to have the The uh, uh, pressures, your peak pressures and plateau pressures to be well under 30, 26 to 22 is, is ideal. You'll accept a very low lung volume to achieve those settings. But when you sit there with a lung volume of 120 cc's and a peak pressure of 40, your plateau pressure is 38 because your lungs are just so stiff and you just keep hammering them, Mm -hmm. they are going to continue to remain in a gross inflammatory state and never have the opportunity to heal. But we see it all the time. So before we get into ECMO and spontaneous breathing, let's stop there and let's discuss all of that. And I'm about halfway through, so I'm doing good on time. I'm paying attention <laughs> to time, and I'm doing this. But let's take a break and discuss what I've said so far. Okay. Your thoughts.
1: No, I, I, I agree with you. Um, there's good things about ECMO, and there's drawbacks to doing ECMO. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, I've seen that, too, where we go on ECMO, and maybe the first 12 hours, everything looks great, the gases look awesome, and then you get your X-ray back, and it is completely whited out it just looks terrible you stay that way for 24 to 48 hours and then slowly you start trending back up again yes hopefully
0: it's very interesting (laughs) to watch that actually because and a lot of it gets so um it gets all mixed together so you have the covid patient with the ground (laughs) glass opacities of which i really honestly cannot really appreciate it as ground glass i i know what they're saying and looking at but it, it doesn't look that way to me it just looks bad I just don't know how to describe the ground <laughs> glasses and how I descri- how yeah, I would I describe I it. But that's what they see, and then you know it gets uh, it gets worse, and the patient's P F ratio is terrible. And then we put them on ECMO, and they perk right up. And then the next morning we look at the X ray, and it's woof, yes. white it out,
1: white it
0: out, yep. So if all these consolidations. Well, that's not the COVID. That's, that's the X- ECMO, yeah. <laughs> which comes back
1: to how long do we wait to put them on? And is this a good idea to put them on? Because you cause that.
0: Right. But that, that, and this is my, this is where I think it gets really complex. That's reversible. True. The question is, are, you know, well, dead pneumocytes are not reversible. So with the COVID or any virus, if you cannot stop the Replication and death of all of the lung tissue, and all you're doing is oxygenating the patient, but not stopping that process. It doesn't matter how long you keep that patient on ECMO. You sure. must that part of the process; it has to stop, whether it be from the patient themselves or not. Now, if you keep them on high-pressure mechanical ventilation, no, those lungs aren't going to heal. No. But if, and if you don't put them on ECMO, they're going to be continuously hypoxemic, which is going to cause pulmonary hypertension, which is going to cause right heart failure, which is going to cause higher inflammatory processes, which is going to burn their lungs out as well. It's a very difficult, frustrating set of circumstances. Yes. But okay, so uh, I think we've belabored, we've belabored up. Does anybody need a break? Can we take a, you want to take a five-minute break and some tea?
1: Totally up to you.
0: You want some tequila? <laughs> I don't have any, but we could run to the store real quick. It's not far. <laughs> oh, no? I'm good. Okay. I'm good. So maybe an iced tea or something like that?
2: Whatever. Let's
0: sure. do that. Let's take five. Can we do that? Can we take sure. five minutes and I'm going to come back and talk about ECMO and spontaneous breathing? And I'm still weaving my way down because I'm still going to come right back to what we discussed just a minute ago. Okay. It's five minutes. Welcome back. Okay. Let's go on to part five or whatever it is of this thing. So, let's go straight to the slides. We have ECMO and spontaneous breathing. So, we have, during this COVID, uh, we, and I, interestingly enough, I didn't realize that this is not something brand new. People have been doing this. But most awake ECMOs were patients who were to to something, yes, and somewhat compensated, and they just needed a little extra oomph to kind of get them through until their transplant was available. They weren't acutely ill. Completely different phenomena. But there's some very interesting aspects of mechanical ventilation and uh, with, uh, with uh, 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 spontaneous breathing that make what we do very different. So spontaneous breathing fundamentally removes the negative effects of mechanical breathing, which you have just talked about, or mechanical ventilation. Potentially, however, adds the stress of labored breathing, especially those patients with what we have seen many times—this rapid, guppy-type breathing. It's painful sometimes oh, yes. to watch uh, them do this, and I—I I contend it's not. I I contend that it's not good, but let's sort of just look phy- uh, uh, physiologically at. Mechanical ventilation, which is on top, versus spontaneous breathing. So what you're looking at as a patient in supine position, the blue lines that you see, which are equal on both, uh, is basically gra- weight from gravity and abdominal pressure going from uh, lower to higher as you continue to move back to the uh, to the back of the patient posteriorly. Um, And then if you look up at the mechanical ventilation, the dotted line is the deflection of the diaphragm during end inspiration. So what you notice is here's your diaphragm at end expiration, and here is your diaphragm during end inspiration. And you'll notice that it deflects almost entirely it's very angular and it's up anteriorly and of course you have less weight here because of gravity forces so this part of the diaphragm does not come drop down and of course this posterior portion of the lung is a highly dependent uh, area of the lung so you lose any of your oxygenation and co2 removal and or your gas exchange, however you want to couch this. And of course, you end up with a big VQ mismatch in this area. Here you see the little graph white being uh, normal, uh, to, you know, the green and then yellow and red. And then if that's, of course, if you prone the patient, you have a different phenomenon because you're taking this weight and you're reversing it, right? Mm-hmm. So then you will deflect more on this side it posteriorly than you will anteriorly. Here you see in spontaneous breathing, the solid line, of course, is end expiration. At inspiration, the chest goes out, plus the diaphragm, because it's actively contracting, contracts along its entire uh, axis and deflects down in a dome-shaped or curved uh, uh, arch-type shape, and you get much better uh, perfusion and ventilation of the entire lung mm-hmm. still going to have a little less in the dependent region but it's not a just a big giant vq mismatch okay so very important to recognize and understand that mechanical ventilation is not just applying pressure and inflating in the lungs in that way it has significant impact on how the lungs are ventilated, how the diaphragm moves, uh, which is the cause of it, and how the oxygenation where you have, again, because of gravity, a higher degree of blood flow going here posteriorly, but yet that's the part of the lung that's not being ventilated, therefore not able to uh, exchange oxygen Mm -hmm. either. Mm -hmm. So very important concept to understand. So there are pros and cons of spontaneous breathing. Patients preferentially move the dorsal, more compliant part of their diaphragm with spontaneous uh, breathing. Ventilation is therefore directed towards the most dependent and better perfused part of the lung, leading to optimal ventilation perfusion matching. We just discussed that very thing. The tone of the respiratory muscles in the awake spontaneously breathing subject guarantees the expansion of chest, wall, and lungs at end expiration, functional residual, which is your functional residual capacity for those that are respiratory therapists or pulmonary care people. Maintaining diaphragmatic contraction and avoiding controlled mechanical ventilation could prevent ventilator induced diaphragm dysfunction, which is, you know, you start to lose your, you know, you're, you're paralyzed, you're sedated and paralyzed for a couple of months and your diaphragm's not going to work too terribly well. None of your muscles are. During spontaneous breathing, air moves from the mouth, of course, to the alveoli through a decrease in intrathoracic pressure. We breathe because of a negative pressure intrathoracically, which sucks air from the atmosphere into our lungs. It's a negative pressure uh, effect. Um, Uh, which favors venous return from extra thoracic organs, maintaining cardiac filling and output. The same mechanism seems implicated in favoring pulmonary lymphatic drainage. So you'll notice that when you look at, you want to know if your patient is hypovolemic or not. You look for your, and and you are mechanically ventilated, you look for your systolic pressure variation. You'll notice you you have a respiration, your pressure will go up, expiration, your pressure will go down because you're occluding and unoccluding your venous return going back to the heart. The avoidance of endotracheal intubation could reduce the incidence of ventilatory uh, intubation associated pneumonia through the maintenance of the natural barrier defenses against bacteria Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in our mouths and our throats. And then, of course, the cons to spontaneous breathing. Transpulmonary pressure is one of the forces implicated in the development of ventilatory-induced lung injury. Spontaneous breathing generates positive transpulmonary pressure, which is airway pressure minus pleural pressure. Similarly to mechanical ventilation, lung damage might therefore also derive from spontaneous hyperventilation or spontaneous ventilatory induced lung injury we have seen patients who were not intubated who developed tension pneumothoraces Mm -hmm. because of this very thing they're describing here Mm -hmm. when the work of breathing is very high the strenuous respiratory muscle effort can lead to high oxygen consumption so we've seen that many times you have a patient we're on ECMO. they look great but they start just trying to breathe on their own, and they're working so hard and they're consuming so much oxygen, it makes it their cardiac output goes way up. And now we have a big miss effective ECMO flow reduction or a native cardiac output ECMO flow mismatch. It's similar to a VQ mismatch, only it only has to do with blood and ECMO, mm-hmm. effective ECMO flow. And that then becomes a problem. It also leads to an increase in CO2 production. And a very high cost of breathing, which in turn could worsen the hypoxemia that we're trying to treat. If gas exchange needs are not met in other ways, for example, through extracorporeal respiratory support, sedation, intubation, and mechanical ventilation, could be necessary to avoid muscle exhaustion. And I contend a very high-stress environment, which leads to more stress hormones being released. Which results in right, a vicious cycle. So in conclusion, although mechanical ventilation is commonly employed to avert catastrophic hypoxemia and hypercapnia in patients with severe ARDS, mechanical ventilation per se can cause leg injury and accelerate the disease progression. Extracorporeal ECMO provides an alternative to rescue patients with severe respiratory failure, that mechanical ventilation fails to maintain adequate gas exchange. The timing of ECMO initiation based on the risks and benefits of ECMO has been widely investigated. In the running of ECMO, the protective ventilatory strategy can be employed without worrying about catastrophic hypoxia and carbon dioxide retention. There is a large body of evidence showing that protective ventilation with low tidal volume, high PEEP, and prone positioning can provide benefits on mortality outcomes. More recently, there is an increasing popularity on the use of awake and spontaneous breathing for patients undergoing ECMO. Lastly, we discussed ECMO weaning. The majority of centers prioritized weaning VV ECMO over mechanical ventilation while Others preferred to wean mechanical ventilation first. So that is a controversy on which direction should we be going. My real question is, of course, if you're not intubated, then you can't wean the ECMO, the, the vent first. So it's obviously going to be the ECMO. I really am having, I, you know, I'm sort of iffy about this awake ECMO, whether or not it really makes sense, or we should be trying to get patients weaned off of the ECMO as soon as we can because I do see the ECMO as um, having its own morbidities associated with it. And now I wouldn't say that for everyone, but I think there are times we should be intubating patients and there are times when it's, I can see where, okay, we we, we don't need to just yet, but we shouldn't be so absolutely determined never to because if they need it, they need it, right? Mm-hmm. They can't be, they're not going to recover if they can't rest. Exactly. There has to be a exactly.
1: balance. Yes, exactly.
0: So now for how long? How long do we do this for? That's a very serious question. This study that came out of Cutter, but I think it's very good. Dr. Raza and you know, published it in 2017, is about a patient who went 300 plus days on ECMO. Lessons learned, and I, I really want to go over each section of this because I think it's so. It, this was very very well done. VV ECMO uh, provides, of course, respiratory support for ARDS until the underlying acute lung pathology improves. VV ECMO support for greater than 100 days is rare, and in most situations requires a destination therapy, for example, of lung transplantation. This may not be an option in some centers. In this particular hospital, they describe a case that went that was their longest, greater than 300 days, with severe residual fibrotic lung disease and the inability to wean off ECMO. This presentation briefly discusses the multifaceted challenges and lessons learned from this experience. They go on to in their discussion and lessons to be learned. Prolonged ECMO can lead to various challenges, some of which are briefly discussed below. General, there are more common, the common uh, general ECMO related issues. These are more common due to prolonged ECMO run and include membrane failure, thrombosis, DIC, etc. Right ventricular failure may prove to be a terminal event in these patients. Rare issues are prolonged heparin therapy may lead to osteoporosis and heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Their patient uh, was positive for HIT and was managed with prolonged argatraban therapy. 3. Unusual complications. Extensive fibrol uh cavitary lung disease can lead to large lung cavities impairing gas exchange percutaneous pleural pulmonary procedures are at high risk during ecmo we performed percutaneous drainage of large bullous uh lesions uh, bullous lesions without any untoward event unexpected hypoglycemia and type 2 lactic acidosis were also unusual events in this patient potential etiologies and management of these rare events Will be discussed of course later on in the presentation i probably am not going to get into those things here's where i start to get excited about this and what i wanted to bring up team morale and psychology and psychological support prolonged ecmo patient care with no destination therapy can be extremely stressful for caregivers frequent debriefing sessions may help to mitigate these issues Formal, personal, psychological support should be readily available to all team members to mitigate stress-related complications. I'm going to tell you, I'll tell you, I'll tell everybody out there, I have PTSD from this COVID experience. Yes, I agree. From our practice, what we went through, it has, I dreamt about it last night. I dreamt about it last night, and it was a bizarre dream. (laughs)
1: I've done. the patient decannulated themselves oh oh lordy
0: but it didn't start off that way okay. it was a long dream and it was dreadfully painful um, and it took forever this, it seemed yeah, this but it has ended been with the patient decannulating themselves and dying
1: this is very stressful I can't tell you how many times I've ended my shift at work for an ECMO patient maybe lost that patient gone out to my car and just before even going anywhere just cried mm-hmm. just cried my eyes out
0: mm-hmm
1: I mean, we're all going to have PTSD after COVID. I think we all do. Yeah.
0: But we're expected to be... Or we're going to be
1: alcoholics one or the other.
0: Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. We're both. <laughs> we're both. But we're expected to be stoic. <laughs> yeah. We're expected to be stoic.
1: We are. We're and you are. To... While you're there, you are. But we're only human. And you leave and it just... That's Man, not hits how him. we're seen. Yeah.
0: That is but not we're how human. we're seen. Darren. And, this,
1: and this new generation of awake ECMO that, you know, some of us didn't have any experience with in the past, is really opening our eyes and allowing us to become close to these patients Mm -hmm. and close to their families and getting Mm -hmm. to know them. So when things don't go well and it's, you know, we lose them, it hurts, Mm -hmm. mentally and physically.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Other issues with this very long ECMO run, skin integrity and musculoskeletal function, I can tell you that we have seen that in just a, in our patients that didn't go 300 days um although we'll talk oh, yeah. about Michelle she went 3 months it was oh, yeah. it was it was pretty close to 100 days besides uh besides the adequate nutrition mobility and muscle exercises are extremely important to maintain musculoskeletal functional status we all understand that we were actively mobilizing this patient while on ECMO to prevent these complications mm-hmm. so and you can't do that if you're on the ventilator Mm-mm. so that is another problem however Psychological issues for the patient. Prolonged ECMO, ICU stay, limited mobility, limited family connections are a rich recipe for depression and other psychological issues. (coughs) We saw that several times with several of our patients. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Team members from patients' countries. Birthday, of course, this is in Qatar, so they're going to have a lot of people that are going to come from somewhere else. But having those connections are going to be very important for patients to stay connected and they themselves not becoming depressed. We had a patient- This is an area
1: too, I'm sorry. No, please. But this is an area too, um, especially in our awake awake patients, that we need to build on in the hospital, not us per se, but the hospital needs to have advocates for these patients, you know, um, some psychotherapy for them to help them move through this because these patients are awake. They can talk to you and they need someone to say, you know, just to walk them. I'm not a psychologist. I don't know what to say to these people. All I can do is say, you know, try your best. You've got to get better. You've got to do this for your kids, your wife, or whoever, you know.
0: Absolutely.
1: And, but someone well, needs to go and in and Well, just listen to them. them. Yes.
0: Let yes. them t- talk.
1: Exactly. Exactly. You because know, we seen... go
0: in there and rah-rah them all the time. Yeah. We go in there. I go in there and do the Sergeant Joe. <laughs> okay. You go in. You're a little more sensitive. Mm-hmm. You do it in a different way. Mm-hmm. I have my way of doing it. I march them.
1: But how many of our patients have initially been like, I, I can't do this, I'm done, I, I want out? And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you maybe say the right thing, the one word, your kids, your wife, you gotta mm-hmm. go home, you gotta do this, and they, they turn it around. Yeah. And, but we can't do this job alone, you know, of handling psychological issues of ECMO and ECMO, extended periods of ECMO. Correct. We need help with that, and I think that's an area that hospitals are really falling behind on.
0: Mm-hmm. I would agree with that 100%. Ethical and other considerations, ECMO to nowhere, create tension among the team members due to different views about the ongoing care of some of these patients. Consideration of withdrawal of care is a major ethical issue and needs to be resolved by involvement of all team members, Mm -hmm. local ethics committees, religious scholar input, uh, consideration of local policies and input from the patient and any available family members. That is a very, that's a very strong statement. Mm -hmm. ECMO to nowhere to somewhere, explorations for uh, non-regional transplant centers, sometimes it's just not going to happen, charitable organizations, conducting fundraising activities for those people that can't afford it. But in conclusion, prolonged ECMO therapy poses its unique challenges. Good team dynamics, frequent debriefing sessions, and ethic uh, consultations are extremely important during care of these patients. Innovative solutions in collaboration with regional and distant transplant centers may provide an opportunity for destination therapy in these patients. Now, sometimes that's just, I mean, right here in Houston, they're just down the street. The patient's not lung transplant candidate. We can't just get them transferred to a lung transplant center because they're not a lung transplant candidate. Mm -hmm. Not to mention there are only so many lungs and there's just aren't enough. Mm -hmm. So, you know, really this is gonna be a bridge to recovery or a bridge to nowhere. Um, And we just recently had that with a patient who was asking for a gun. So that they could end their own life, The patient ultimately went on to to, to die, uh, not that way, but they did they did die, and uh, uh, that's 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 But a we've had event. a patient
1: that also said that and went on to go home.
0: This is true, so that's and we're going to talk about two sides that. to the coin. I completely agree. <laughs> in this, uh, what you're looking at here is from a, uh, a a patient that was done in China. This is coming from. Uh, the frontiers in medicine, intensive care medicine, and anesthesiology. But a 61-year-old man um, who went in with COVID um, around day six. They post intubation. They uh, had a very high, a very low PF ratio. It dropped all the way from 200 to 123, and their PCO2 jumped up to 64. Chest X-ray showed diffuse opacifications so with the lung fields, and they went ahead and they made decision to put uh, put the patient. On ECMO, but they intubated first. Now this patient went on to survive. This patient actually survived, but I wanted you to take note of something. One, two, three, four, five, six oxygenator changeouts. That, yeah. because of coag- uh, hypercoagulable coagulopathy? Right. Very interesting. So in 111 days, the patient actually this patient survived. I find very interesting. Uh, There was a very good article, and this is actually an article that was written by an Elaine Volstek from uh, the UK, and he was actually discussing an article that was written, published in The Lancet by Ryan uh, Barbaro and colleagues, and they reported an analysis uh, which was in an international cohort of adult ECMOs for COVID-19 who were supported, uh, again with ECMO. Patients were divided into these various three groups. I don't really want to get into all of the details of the study, but here's the thing. The findings suggest that mortality rates for ECMO-supported patients have increased by 15% between an arbitrarily set early and late stage of the pandemic on or before May 1st versus after May 1st.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And therein lies the difference between the original variant, the I mean, the original strain, The beta variant, maybe the gamma variant, but the delta variant at May 1st. That, I believe, is the differentiator. If you got, if you were treated, and I'm going to show you some reasons I say that, if you got the original strain or one of the earlier variants versus the delta variant, your chances of survival were much higher, more than a 15% differential in our experience. Absolutely.
1: I feel like it's the other way around.
0: Oh, God, no. That, the, our numbers don't support that. Okay. The data doesn't support that. Um, going on with this continued uh, 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 discussion from uh, Dr. Volstech, earlier reports on ECMO for COVID have shown very high mortality, just on their own. La- later cohort trials showed similar outcomes compared to <laughs> other t- types of ECMO uh, for uh, A- A- ARDS, encouraging an increased use for ECMO in ARDS. So or COVID art. So what basically what happened is in the very beginning we had very high mortality with COVID with putting patients on ECMO for COVID, but then over time it kind of got seen that well no the results are very similar if you have a sixty percent survival, that's not bad if you're you know in, in, in really bad shape right but that didn't really vet out I don't believe. But in the end of the day, that's why we saw so much ECMO use was that the results seemed very encouraging when you looked at it on a global scale, not necessarily just your local area or maybe even regional or maybe even national. And these are numbers that are coming from a global perspective, which can be good, can be bad. I think it just depends. Uh, In the study with uh, Barbaro and colleagues, mortality rates for ECMO-supported patients increased 15% on or before May 1st of 2020. The analysis also showed the highest mortality was at those centers that had only begun providing ECMO on or after May 1st. I think that's for two different reasons, a more virulent strain in Delta and the inexperience of what really happens when you put somebody on ECMO and how much it really takes to do it. Further, the report states, this analysis shows that the majority of patients supported with ECMO will now die. And that is not just die on ECMO. That is basically three to six months, even if you get them weaned. They're having events and they're not surviving. This phenomenon has been seen in many other clinical scenarios and is thought to be a key explanation for the superiority of being allocated to an ECMO center. In this particular case, what they're saying is ECMO centers have better better ECMO outcomes because they will not put everyone referred to them for ECMO on ECMO. A lot of times they're saying no when a, a, a community... Based hospital would say yes, and they're essentially limiting their care. Do you believe it's
1: believe it's the fact that ECMO centers have, or they're better equipped for this?
0: Not necessarily. I don't think that's the only reason. I think if you go and read this article, you'll see that a lot of times they're not putting patients on ECMO that someone else believed needed to be on ECMO and would have put on ECMO had they had the opportunity to do it. And what that tells me is there is, and we discussed it ad nauseum. I think today, if you take a patient who doesn't need to be on ECMO, can get by without it and put them on ECMO, you may in fact do the harm Mm, that it takes to Mm. have them succumb to their disease. Right. So that I think is the differentiator. I think at ECMO Center, is not necessarily, like we're not an ECMO center, but we do ECMO damn well. Oh, yeah. But we're not an ECMO center, technically, right? But we do a lot of it, all right? However, I guess we're a quasi, pseudo ECMO center, junior ECMO center, you can call say, us whatever you want to call us.
1: Somewhere up there in ECMO center. Right, league. <laughs>
0: but I think what an ECMO center offers is that wisdom of, I don't want to put this into early, I'm gonna wait a little bit and getting people through without ever having to go on ECMO and the consequences that are associated therein. Mm-hmm. That's what I think. That's my view. So I wanna talk about Ricky Ham. He's a pilot, uh, a, a medevac pilot from UAB. He was for 17 years. He got COVID. He was UAB's longest ECMO survivor at 147 days on ECMO. He went home, he is still on supplemental oxygen, he will have to use an extra strength CPAP machine at night to help with his breathing. Breathing. He has suffered and continues to sur- suffer profound hearing loss. Uh, he goes to a speech pathologist and a quote from him during this uh, interview was, we built it to live in the rest of our lives. This is his house he's referring to. We built ramps and wide doorways and no stairs. But it was for when we grew old. I never expected to need a handicapped access quite this soon.
2: Mm.
0: And this is probably the best he's going to get. He's alive. Can't argue that.
2: He's alive. Chris
0: Hernandez,
2: original strain. He went
0: home. He he went back to work. Chris went back to work. That's incredible. Okay, Mm -hmm. he was the first. He shut the Houston rodeo. I can say his name. It's not a HIPAA violation. You can find him online. He's done interviews at public. Look up Chris Hernandez and Houston rodeo. Michelle Tate. She does plenty of interviews now. She did great. She was an original strain though, or early variant. She went back to work. She was a Zoom instructor ahead. She's a T.H. I only put the initials. I didn't put the name because he hasn't done anything like that, or she hasn't done anything like that, or whichever the case may be. But. He's improving, and he's getting better. Here's where it gets really confusing for me and difficult, and we're gonna come right back to what I had discussed earlier. From the National Museum of Civil War Medicine, you do the greatest good for the greatest number. That is what triage is in the Civil War, or was, and is, in fact, still today. Mm -hmm. Now, let me give you my scenario you have 5 ECMO machines you have 10 ECMO machines have as many as you want i don't care okay <laughs> okay there's not an unlimited supply there's a limit okay okay let's just say you have 5 okay. rush of patients with covid this patient's 26 this patient's 31 we, we got to give them a chance. So there goes two of your machines. Mm-hmm. You got three left
2: mm-hmm.
0: You have another one. He's 46 years old Put him on another one He's uh, it's a it's a female with that's uh, that's peripartum We have to put her on right we got to save the baby and her put her on now You got one machine left Somebody else comes to the door and in your philosophy Everyone gets a chance you put the next one on now. You have five You have no other machines. All of them are gonna be on for 100 plus days. What do you do with the next five that come through the door?
1: I don't know. I mean, if there's no other equipment, then my hands are tied. If I have a heart lung machine or something else, you have nothing but the else. These is, are your
0: only options. But, you have five. I'll give you ten. You yeah, have ten I'm, patients. I can't now. play
1: God like that. I mean, if, if someone but comes you through are my door. God no, like no that. but if someone comes through no, my
0: you door. You are playing God like that. You are. <laughs> the problem is you just don't like this problem.
1: No, I don't like this problem.
0: Right. <laughs> but these are the problems.
1: Well, then, then the you look to is other avenues. I mean, how?
0: Right. There is We've no doubt.
1: We've borrowed equipment from other hospitals, shuffled things around. Nobody has any. Oh well, then. Let's it's just, just be realistic. You're really and let's just.
0: This I mean, difficult. we're we're yes, we did that. <laughs> we did that. We borrowed pumps from anywhere we could get them. Exactly. Seriously considered. Never did it, so I don't need so anybody what gonna, coming gonna and gonna have, getting after me. Are you going to have? We seriously considered five using one from a pig lab and
1: put four people on, and you have one extra machine for whoever comes through the door. But that fifth guy that should have probably gone on there initially, mm. you're just going to say no. I'm sorry. We have a machine, but we're not going to put you on right now. Are you really going to do that? Or are you just going to put him on, and you know, we'll see what happens with the next lot that comes through the door?
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, these are well, you won't see them because they won't get referred to you because they can't. I mean, we've 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 actually been in that situation before. I mean, we've maybe, had to make that choice. Here's the problem: with everyone gets it for a, however long it takes. Is
1: you can, I mean, there we mm-hmm. and you know when. COVID first started, we mm-hmm. were putting patients on. They were probably a little bit older than we would have put on normally, right? Yeah. And we put them on to give them a chance. Yep. And some of them did okay and some didn't. But right. you have to give someone but that you're, chance. But when all your
0: resources are consumed, okay. the ideal patient, what do you do? It's a reality of the circumstances. Here's the issue. You have a patient. Been on for six 30 days, not showing any improvement. It those patients, and we've had anomalies that went three almost three months, 90 days. Michelle went, I think, 93 days, if I remember. I don't remember exactly what it was. It was 89 days, however long AM, it was. Maybe. It was a lo- what well, okay, it was a long time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Nearly three months, mm-hmm. whatever that ended up being. It was a long time. There were Several times when I didn't think she was going to, like, if somebody else comes in the door that needs this, we really need to be thinking well, that's about what I'm saying.
1: stopping. That's what I'm saying. Is, but Look, how she turned around and she, she went did. home and she's working. And but
0: at, yes, and that's great for her. And I want that to be for her and for every patient that made it like that. I want them all to do well. I do. But what's the cost? In other words, although you don't know them although they weren't your patient yet because they didn't have the opportunity for ecmo how many people that may have been as good or better of a candidate didn't get it so how many how many did we and it could be zero i don't know okay it's it's it this is an unknown and i recognize that so i'm not disputing it but the question is how many people died
1: Because we didn't to
0: save the one? Yes,
1: I, I understand.
0: And is that how triage works? Do we save the one at the cost of many, or do we save the many at the cost of one?
1: But, I mean, this is, I mean, it is it's a war. It's an ethical this dilemma. Is, this is not a war, where you know there's more people coming. That was to a war. You, yeah. Well,
2: this was a war. I was just war. about to say, Yeah. Yeah.
1: But we didn't know how many more patients were going to come through our doors. So that's what I'm saying. You mm-hmm. can't sit on a piece of equipment and say, Well, I'm keeping this for somebody potentially coming in the door when mm-hmm. you've got a guy over here that needs it now. Mm
2: hmm. Mm hmm.
1: You're going to tell him no because you're waiting on a potential to come through the door? Mm hmm. We, we had two
0: patients that thank God that we didn't have an equipment malfunction. Because had we had an equipment malfunction,
1: part machine.
0: There was, <laughs> we were in a lot of trouble. Okay. I don't know how we got through it all.
1: I mean, when COVID started, look, they were popping ventilators out of everywhere, mm-hmm. right? Yep. M- maybe we needed to do the same thing with, I mean, who's to say we're out of the woods yet and we're not going to have another surge, but maybe that was something we should have thought about was having some sort of equipment on the standby mm-hmm. for all these patients. Maybe it wouldn't if have been a full-fledged... If we'd have had any
0: equipment on standby, we would have had... used it. Yeah, <laughs> we probably would have, yes. We would have used it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And should we have? Because everybody was fighting over getting equipment. In fact, an unintended consequence of all of this is a bunch of companies have created a bunch of, I'll just say it, crap equipment, Mm. and it's in the market, and hospitals are buying it, and these companies are making money, and it's crap. And it's fundamentally wrong, but it's reality. And that's something we're gonna have to deal with moving forward, is lousy equipment. Because it's, it's flooded the market.
1: Yeah, but it's equipment that could tide you over until you can free up your own equipment, right?
0: No, it's, they're, they're selling it. I mean, it's, it's, okay, it's so like the Abiomed one, you know, okay. that they have. You can't, the, you, the oxygenator goes in a, in a cover. You can't even see the oxygenator. It's just the weirdest little thing. Um, <laughs> does it work? Sure, it works. You know, but it's like the LiveSpark, same kind of thing that Levinova bought from, from Tandem Life. It, but it's, it's it, you know, yes, it works. It works. That's all I can say about it is it works. Well,
1: I mean, then it's,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's something. It's a backup for mm-hmm. someone.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, if someone I loved came through the door and, and you said, well, we don't <coughs> have our normal equipment, but we've got a new piece of equipment here we can try, I'd be like, go for it. Mm-hmm. I mean... Well, that's, that's our job. That's what we're I here I did for. that,
0: and I had a lot of complaints from people saying, we don't want to use this boat anchor, okay, <laughs> including you.
1: Yes, you're right. All
0: right? People weren't too eggs. happy with me because I didn't just get one of them. I got two of them.
1: But we used And we it. had two
0: patients but on with them. We used it. We did. We
1: weren't happy, but we but used it. But I got it. a lot of complaining. I know. Well, come
0: mm-hmm.
1: on. We're stressed out.
0: Okay, <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Okay, so should Sharon, um, let's see, daily transparency of the ECMO trajectory is absolutely uh, necessary. Yes, uh, Jay Howard, I could not agree with you more. Um, I think that is a an excellent point. Um, I think we need to be, it's one of the things that we've been working on is developing that kind of, uh, of, of system, if you will, where there is an actual ECMO coordination team that works together so that information to the clinicians is disseminated, whether it be perfusion, nursing, specialists, uh, physician, what respiratory, whatever it may be, like when they do rounds, but on a a different level than that, only specifically about these ECMO patients. And I think we need to have better uh, coordination and agreement with who we have on, how long we have them on, and and, uh, whether we should put them on at all, whether we should intubate them at all. I think we really have to have a better – because it's so – dependent on who is the the pulmonologist or intensive care person on that particular day as to which direction they're going to go with this. Mm-hmm. And I think you need better, um, I think you need to have a team approach, a multidisciplinary approach with input from everyone making a uh, good decision. And I don't think we should be so disinclined to go ahead and ventilate somebody with ultra lung protective strategies if not being intubated causes them to uh, do so in such a laborious and stressful way. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's mm-hmm. that that I think you lose the benefit of spontaneous breathing or non-mechanical ventilation when they're doing it like that. Mm-hmm. But very good point, uh, Jay Howard. All right. You know, I've got nothing else. Why don't you close us out? No, you close us out. No, you close us out. Come on.
1: I don't know what to say.
0: Say hi to Tammy. Hi, Tammy. (laughs) Hey, Tammy. Got a replacement for you. Found one that quick. (laughs) Tammy's doing a case, by the way. We miss you. We do. I wish you were here, too. (laughs) I wish you were here, too. All right. Well, very good. We're going to go ahead and close it out. I want to thank you so much. So I think you have some very good thoughts, very good insight, uh, great experience with this. Have a lot of passion for it, and I respect that and appreciate it very, very much. Um, this is a. Uh, I wish it was a. I wish it was an easy topic, but it's it's not. No, it's it's not. it's, it's um, intellectually very challenging and emotionally even more challenging.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So let's see. We are we have um, coming up. Um, webinar schedules, PerfWeb72, PerfWeb73 is Wednesday, December 1st, with the uh, Vanderbilt Faculty Forum. They're going to be doing their 2020 review of their heart transplants at Vandy, the UMC, followed by the uh, Journal Club, Tammy Sparrow Center Journal Club, Neurologic Recovery, after 10 minutes of absent cerebral flow at normothermia. Oh, that, should that should be a, a very interesting, yes. I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be a good Journal Club case uh, or a presentation. And then John Ingram on his Knowledge Nuggets is going to be talking about albumin. Do we give too much or not enough? Well, I can answer that question for you right now. You cannot give too much albumin. It's impossible. It's uh, it's uh, absolutely Much better for volume, especially volume expansion, reducing edema. You name it. Now you got to be careful. You don't give it when you're in heart failure and the patient's third space, and they're 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 not making any urine, and you throw in a bunch of albumin, you tip them over the edge (laughs) real fast. But if you're on ECMO or you're on CRRT or you're able to do it in a in a sensible way, it's the only way you can really clear their edema. You have to have a way of removing the plasma, the excess plasma water. Uh, and then December sixteenth, we're going to be doing uh, perfweb. Uh, we're going to be redoing perfweb sixty-eight because we never did it. We had to cancel it, so it's going to be a rescheduled. Followed immediately by perfweb seventy-four. So it's going to be the factors that influence do two during CPD. Why do you need a perfusionist? And then on uh, to follow that is that same day is going to be the economy of perfusion. Because I think a lot of people don't understand how perfusion makes money for a hospital, and it's uh it's I think it should be very interesting. Very, uh, it's going to be very interesting to hear a lot of those things. Because i had to learn a lot to do these. You know, yeah. I, I, they say that the person who learns the most out of all these lectures is the person who does the lecture. Because you have to do all of this yeah, reading and exactly. making the slides and blah 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 mm-hmm. blah, and then you know at least do, look over it several times. So you at least mostly sound like you know what you're saying (laughs) um so we're gonna be doing that and then we're working on the 2022 we're gonna have we have a new studio that is it's gonna be here but we are doing uh we have a new uh what do you call it uh what do you call the new thing we're doing the new thing just a new streaming device new technology technology. so advancing the technology Mm -hmm. so that we can have a lot more in the way of graphics add a lot more things in. We're going to be working very hard over the holidays at developing those relationships with other people. Hopefully COVID continues to be on the decline and it doesn't uber surge that we'll probably see some bumps in the road, but they're not crazy. And we can continue to develop that. We're developing our nurse program. We, we actually uh, offered a, uh, a, a sent an employment agreement or, or offer letter to a nurse who's coming out of the medical center to help us develop our nursing uh, platform, which is going to be, I think, fantastic. Trying to develop also a symbiotic relationship uh, with, uh, with a couple of the institutions, local uh, uh, systems that exist here in the Houston area uh, as to be our surrogates. And we're gonna continue to develop those relationships with various different people to bring increasingly uh, more advanced content and diversifying it for perfusion, for nursing, and for physicians. But we're really working at retooling the studio, not in the sense of making it look different, but increasing our technological capabilities to be able to do things we right now just can't do because it'll just fry the processor or just shuts the machine off if you start getting too complex with it. Anything else, Magic? Yes. Oh, if you purchased this webinar and you need your uh, certificate, the quiz is up. It's already been done. So you can go on there, complete your quiz, get your certificate, and be on your way. And thank you for doing that, by the way, for those that watched it for free. Of course, we're happy. We're glad you did. We love people to participate in these programs. We always enjoy the audience, and we are here to give information. But if you did buy it because you needed the CEUs, we thank you for that very much. It helps keep the lights on just a little bit longer, so we appreciate that. But buy that app. I need to sell a million of them. I think we got about maybe a thousand, so I have a little ways to go. About 99,000 to go. So come on, help me out here, all right? And uh, but that's when I retire. A million, okay. a million of my apps. I thought it would have been viral by now. I was hoping it would be like it would just sell like hotcakes. That's really what i was hoping for. I guess I should have done Angry Birds perfusion style. There you go. Instead, instead of having like little <laughs> hammers or anything like that, they have they throw tubing clamps. <laughs> yeah, that'd be that'd be perfect, right? It would be. All right. Thank you very much. We'll see you uh, on uh, on uh, December uh, December first. We'll see you then. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, David. Thanks, Magic. Thank you again, Sharon. Thank you. <laughs> be safe, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.